We continue the shear in Navi Jewish history. Now, as stated after the incident between David Hamelach and Bathsheba, though as we said, we stated very clearly, very emphatically, and for posterity, that in the eyes of the Torah, in the eyes of Hashem, it is clearly written that there was no sin whatsoever committed between King David and Bathsheba. Still, for various reasons that were explained in the last year, King David was destined to suffer because of that incident. The statement of the Navi, prophet to him was that an evil would arise from among his family, from within. And now we come to the point where the story begins to unfold. A very intricate pattern woven in heaven. We see how Hashem brings about these incidents. One item leads to another. There's all a pre-planned part of history that is decided upon from above, naturally. Here we come to the beginning of this new unraveling of the results of this past story. Torah tells us that King David had a daughter who was not actually his daughter. Her name was Tamar, Tamar, born from Maacha. Maacha was her mother's name. Maacha was the princess of the land of Geshur. Her father, Talmai, king of Geshur, was naturally a Goy, not Jewish. She was not Jewish either when King David took her, not officially as a wife, as a wife to live with at the time. Now, he did not convert her at the time because there's a special din, special law in the Torah, which says that when the Jews go out to battle in those days, during the time of battle, they could take women captives and to live with them as husband and wife, though the woman is not yet converted. Afterwards, when you bring her home, then you have the opportunity to convert her. In this case, King David took Maacha the daughter of the king of Geshur, and she gave birth to this daughter called Tamar. Now this daughter was officially classified as the daughter of Macha and in no way related to King David. Though it was a legal wedding, a legal mating, but there was no relationship between the two. The reason being, again, because the Gemara says the din is that if at any time there is any relation between a Jew and a non-Jewish woman, the children take after the mother, which means that in that case, the children are completely non-Jewish, not related to the father who is Jewish. This was the case of King David. Afterwards, when he brought her home, she converted, and then she gave birth to a son. This son now was a Jewish child, the son of King David and the son of Macha, who now was Jewish. His name was Absalom. Still, Tomah was a legal daughter that is legally adopted or considered the daughter of King David to live within the palace of the king. So that Absalom regarded Tomah as his sister. After all, they were both born from the same mother. Now, one day, Tomah, who possessed a high degree of beauty, was coveted. She was desired by King David's eldest son, Amnon. Amnon saw her. He wanted her very badly, but he wanted her just to enjoy, to live with, not to marry. He could have married her, of course, legally, since they were not brother and sister. 
But he did not want to marry, just wanted to live with her, only he could not figure out a plan as to how he could get to her. How could he ever get her alone? How would it be fitting for him, the eldest prince, to get Tamar alone? He had a friend, Yonadav, who was very clever. He was his advisor. He was a chacham, wise in an evil, evil matter, evil sense. Yonadav advised him, pretend that you are ill. You must have service. You must have special food prepared for you. And ask the king who will come to visit you, just in a casual manner, to have your sister, that is also in a special term used, non-legal sister Tamar to prepare food for you, prepare pancakes, and bring them to you. This way you'll, you'll feel better. You need this nourishment and have her do it for you. The king will not suspect anything. Why should he? And of course she will need, she'll suspect nothing either. She'll be very happy to serve you as the eldest prince. This way you will get, you'll have a chance to get her alone. This was done. The king agreed. He told Tamar to prepare pancakes for her brother. Well, they are called brother and sister because of the fact that still they came from the same father. They all came from the same father, King David. But though they are brother and sister, they could still be married legally. If you follow legal terms, it's very simple to understand. So in this case, Tamar came to serve Amnon, and then when she repaired it for him, he said to her, I want you to bring it to my bedroom. I want you to serve it to me alone, to feed it to me, and I'll feel much better. Again, unsuspectingly, she did this. When she came into the room, he had no one else there. He locked the door and said, no, I've got you, and you know what I want. She began to cry, to plead with him. But she said, if you really want me, why don't you marry me legally? Because if you don't, you're going to bring dishonor upon me. You bring disgrace to me. I'll be thrown out. I'll be vilified, shamed. I'll have no place for myself in the palace anymore. She pleaded with him, and his animal instincts got the better of him. He took her forcefully. However, she would not be a willing victim to this. The says she fought back. And in this battle, though he succeeded in disgracing her, but in turn, he was a victim of her vengeance. She caused him impotency. Well, he lost his masculinity through her. Uh, this enraged him so, he became so furious that he never uses the term now, that as much as he liked her, as much as he had desired her, his hatred for her now far exceeded the desire he had before. And so he threw her out, expelled her, again despite her cries of anguish. She left and she went through the palace crying screaming in a manner which showed that her honor had been desecrated. Avshalom, her brother, saw her. In this case, her brother, because they both came from the same mother, too. He was very protective towards her. He called her in and told her to stay secluded in a special place in the palace. He would see to it that she'd have everything she needed, and she could hide her shame there. Same time, Avshalom burned from within. He wanted revenge from Amnon, having despoiled his sister. And he bided his time. He waited. He waited for a period of two years. That time, there was a special ceremony in which the elegantes, the rich people, especially the royalty, went out to shear the sheep. So at this special ceremony, Avshalom came before King David with a plan. He asked King David if it was possible for the king to accompany 
him to this place of shearing. King was very reluctant to refuse this offer, but he said he was too occupied, and he pleaded with Avshalom to release him. He liked very much to accommodate him, but he couldn't. So Avshalom said to the king, in that case then, at least if you can't come, let all these sons of the king, let all the princes come. Uh, the, imagine there were many princes then. King had many wives, many princes. He said, but to take your place, have your oldest son, Amnon, attend this ceremony too. The king gladly acceded, because this would be excused from coming. So only B'nai HaMelech, the king's sons, came to the ceremony with Amnon there too. At the ceremony, Avshalom spoke to his own private servants and told them there's a special bounty, special prize, if you can get Amnon on the side and see that he is killed. This was done. His servants killed Amnon, and panic broke out among the rest of the sons of the king, their servants, and they all fled. Word got back to King David that there was bloodshed, that Avshalom had killed all of the king's sons. David heard this, he broke out in wild tears and crying to lose all of his children that way. Because of one son of Sholem who had desired revenge, he had heard about the story with Amnon and Tomar, he felt this was going too far. A short while later, he was notified that the news was false. It was only Amnon himself who was killed by Avshalom, and so the king excommunicated Avshalom. He could not live in the palace anymore. So he stayed out for a long period of time. This was so long a period of time, three years, that the king finally began to yearn for his son because deeply within him, he had a deep liking for Avshalom. Avshalom was what the Torah class, the Torah classifies as a cute son. Cute, he had one major fault. He had long hair. The Gemara says that Avshalom's one fault... There's one single fault, the Gemara Sota states very explicitly that Avshalom's one single fault, his long hair, proved to be his undoing, as we will learn later. It was this long hair that he was very proud of, conceited about, and as we'll see later, this was a fatal error on his part. But meanwhile, he was out for three years' time, the king yearned for him, but the king could not get himself to call Avshalom back. After all, the order of the part of the king cannot really be rescinded easily. But Yoav, the king's general, the king's loyal general, saw that the king yearned for his son, and he planned, he plotted a way to bring father and son together again. Yoav went to the city of Tekua. The Gemara says that this city of Tekua contained a population of unusually wise people. But how can you have a city of people who are wise? The Gemara says because there's a certain food from which the brain receives special nourishment, and those who partake of that food plentifully have sharper minds than the average. This food is the same brain food that fortifies, strengthens a person's retentive powers, his memory. And that is olive oil. A person who drinks olive oil plentiful amounts strengthens his memory and also improves the quality of his brain. Well, she must have one to start with, and on that you feed the olive oil. Now, he went to Tekua, and there he selected a woman, and his plans were set. He picked a woman who was very clever. In this case, he needed a shrewd actress. 
one who could really act out a part. He fed her the material, he gave her the wording, the script, and so she came to the king's palace, and she asked for an audience with King David. She claimed that she was a widow, a very poor widow, and she must speak to the king himself, let the king judge her case. The king could not refuse the plea of a widow, and so he admitted her. She came in crying before him, and she presented this case very eloquently. She said, my husband passed away recently, I am a widow, I was left with two sons, my two only sons. One day, one of my sons killed the other one. I am now left with only one son, my last remaining child. The family of my husband want that son killed for this murder having been committed. Now, there are certain laws, certain cases where you're allowed to kill a one who committed murder. In the case of Goel Hadam, relatives are permitted to kill a murderer if they catch him before he goes to safe place, cities of refuge, or a miklot. But in this case, this was not the case because that's only where a person committed murder unintentionally. But here, this was done deliberately. Therefore, she said, this family of my husband does not really want revenge from the second and the brother. What they want is to eradicate, to eliminate completely anyone who will inherit my husband. They will take over the complete inheritance. This is their motive, a selfish motive with murderous intent. So she pleaded before King David, spare me, my only child, last son I have. King David listened to this plea, and he said, very well. I promise you that I will see to it, will speak to you. the family, they will not touch your son. And that was it. She said, but your majesty, you say that. Uh, I will leave here, and you're going to forget about me because I'm unimportant, and they're going to kill my, other, my son, my remaining child. The king said, no. All right, then I assure you, I'll send people with you, and they'll see to it that under no conditions will your child be harmed. That's it. So she said, thank you. Now, may I say something else? May answer me to what I said? The king said, proceed. He said, well, to be frank, I am not a widow. I don't have two sons. What I meant was for you to consider, for you to meditate on your own problem. You have two sons. One killed the other. Shalom killed Amnon. Uh, is it proper for you to seek the blood of the other son in vengeance? Will that bring back the dead son? Is that going to be a lesson for all the Jews to learn that blood will mean the spilling of more blood? How do you expect to, to have the Jews taught about considerations, humanitarian type of living, pity, the qualities that a Jew is supposed to have, good-naturedness, good heart, if you will set this lesson before them that you seek vengeance to spill the blood of your own child. And therefore, I ask in the name of all the Jews that you pardon Avshalom. Now, the reason that I came so deceitfully, pretending that I was a widow, because I knew if I'd come with this problem itself, then I would never receive an audience, never be allowed to speak to you. I had to use this ruse, this tactic. King David said to her, then I want to ask you just one question, but you must answer, you must reply truthfully. What you just did 
the words you just said, are they your words or are they the words of Yoav? Because I know him well. And she said, you are like an angel of heaven. You cannot be fooled. It is true, they are the words of Yoav. King turned to Yoav, pretended to be angry and said, very well then, you can have your wish. It is granted you can bring Avshalom back to the palace. Yoav walked out smiling. He brought Avshalom back to the palace, but so it was still to no avail because he was admitted into the palace, the king's good graces, but he was not permitted to see the king. For this Avshalom did not like. What's the use of being back in the palace without being in the good graces of the king? He wanted to speak to his father. So he felt that if Yoav accomplished the first half, it is only right that he should complete the task. So he sent his servants to summon Yoav to him, and Yoav refused to come. Again, he sent the servants again to Yoav the second time. Again, Yoav pretended that he was too occupied. So Avshalom said to his servants, I want you to go out to Yoav's fields. Yoav is wealthy, and set fire to his fields. He's got the special fields that he has, the best field, set fire to it, destroy it. Servants did that. Yoav came storming into Avshalom. What was the idea of destroying my field, setting fire to it? Avshalom looked at him blandly and said, I thought you were too busy to see me. How come all of a sudden you have time? Well, in that case, since you're here, I want you to speak to my father about taking me back. Yoav did this. He went to Dabana Melech, and he summoned Avshalom. There was a very tearful and happy reunion between father and son. Now, to this point, King David had suffered one death in the family, the death of Amnon. Torah says that we go on, continue the tragic results of the former case. And now, after this, all that had transpired, suddenly Avshalom became filled with a craving desire for glory, for power. He was not satisfied in being a prince. He wanted to become king. He was not the oldest son. There was no way he could take over the kingdom except through revolt, a rebellion, or assassination. So he began to plan, long-range plan, and winning the hearts of the Jews over to himself against King David. And this he did. The Gemara says this is called stealing the hearts of the Jews. Of Shalom, Gonav as slave Israel, he stole the hearts of the Jews using all types of tricks and conceit deceit by deceiving them where a Jew would come for a trial before King David and Avshalom would stop him and say don't go in because you you will not receive a fair trial there. I look at you and I can tell that you are right. Your case is right. If I was a judge I would find the trial in your favor. That's how he won over people gradually and then to culminate this he finally came to King David and told him that he wanted to go to the city of Hebron for a trip, some special occasion there, and he wanted to have some Jews accompany him. He wanted a king's order that two Jews should accompany Avshalom. King David signed this order. Avshalom went systematically. Each two Jews he showed him this order, so that way he gained more and more. It was a slow process, but it worked to a point where he won over the hearts and the following of most of the tribes of Israel, till he even took over to his side Achisophel. Achisophel was the advisor of King David. He was the Balyoetz 
Achisophel's advice, the Torah says at that time, was so precious, he was so wise and clever a person, that asking advice from Achisophel was practically the same as asking advice from Hashem, through the chest plate of the coin Gadol. So deep and so sagacious was the, the advice, the wisdom of Achisophel. Now here, Avshalom had gained the greatest weapon of all, because wisdom and Chachma is more important than the sword. He stole Achisophel from King David. With this, they became apparent, obvious, that Avshalom was after the kingdom. He was going to take it from King David, and King David realized that his life was now in danger. So he called his generals and his family into him and said to them, we must flee Yerushalayim. Because Avshalom is on his way here from Hebron. By the time he gets here, if he catches us here, then we'll surely die. We are no match for that their army. We must flee. Let's leave Yerushalayim quickly. We can escape with our lives. The family all cried very bitterly over this. King David's followers, but they were forced to flee, and he left. He took his wives, children with him. He left behind his concubines, ten concubines as Pelegish, sort of half-wives, to watch the palace, to await the coming of Avshalom. Also, he told the Kohen Godot, you stay here with the Holy Ark, you remain here, and pretend that you are on the side of Avshalom. You want to serve him loyally. Now, your two sons are both very young and very fleet-footed, have them carry messages to me of any importance. Further, he said to another close advisor of his, Hushai, who was also very wise, he said to him, you stay behind and tell Avshalom that you have decided to join his ranks and it will be your duty that whatever Achisophel advises Avshalom to do, you've got to use all your power to try to dissuade Avshalom from accepting Achisophel's advice. Because if there's anyone that can defeat us, it is Achisophel. He's wise enough to make plans to defeat us, to defeat an army. You remain behind and use all your wiles and tricks to get Avshalom to disregard Achisophel's advice. Uh, then he left. He went out crying. They traveled along. They walked, marched along a road, very tired and worn, very tragically. And while walking along that road, there was one man whose name was Shimi Bengera. Rimegera was a very evil person who saw King David in this condition and felt the, the feeling, the desire to experience being able to talk back to royalty now. So he started to speak in a profane manner to King David from across the road. He started to yell at him, then he began to actually curse him. Uh, Avishai, Yoav and Avishai, the two generals of King David, who were very powerful, and always stood by to protect the king, Avishai said to King David, let me kill this dog. And King David said to Avishai, enough blood has been spilt. Enough, there's enough suffering. Imagine how I'm suffering now, having to flee from my own son. If this person, Shrimbengera, is coming along cursing us, and he was also throwing rocks at them, cursing and throwing rocks, if this is done to us, surely that's the will of Hashem. Perhaps if we accept this without complaint, then Hashem will remove our sins and we'll have a chance to return 
too well for the position. And therefore, he ordered his generals not to touch Shimi ben Gera, who kept on following them, continually cursing and throwing rocks. Meanwhile, Avshalom came marching into Yerushalayim triumphantly with the whole army of the ten tribes of Israel behind him, and he was crowned as king, and he asked Achisophel, advisor, what should I do first? Achisophel, who was advisor now in a very evil manner, said to Avshalom, the first thing you must do is to take the ten concubines of King David as your wives. You must take them all as your wives, publicly marry them. To show, because the wives of a king are forbidden for anybody who is not of royalty, to show that you have removed King David from office and that you are now the king officially. This Avshalom did, and then he said, what's the next step to ensure by taking over the kingdom permanently? Achisophel thought, and he said to Avshalom, your next step is, and this is a step that must be taken, the step is that now you must give me an army of at least 12,000 soldiers to go out and to attack King David, who must be extremely exhausted. There's no way for him to defend himself. There's no way for him to flee, to run, because he's had no rest at all, all day fleeing the city. We attack him now, he and his army, they'll be shredded. We can wipe them out completely, and you'll have no one that the Jews would turn to. Once he is wiped out, once he is killed, they'll have to accept you unquestioningly. This, of course, was true advice. Had Achisophel gone there with an army, it would have been Chasashel, the end of King David and his men. But then Hushai, the spy that King David sent, spoke up and said to Avshalom, I disagree with Achisophel's advice because he does not realize what a powerful fighter King David is, especially in time of stress. When he is desperate, right now fleeing, it will be wild, extremely wild in battle, and no doubt he is waiting for your attack. He's expecting this attack to come, as Achisophel said, and if he should catch your men now, they come to attack him. In this wild battle, he and his men will destroy this army you'll send. If you do that, all your followers will desert you. They'll say, how can they follow a king who is that weak? They admire only a king who is a good fighter. And therefore, it is my suggestion that you wait. Don't take this small army of 12,000 men now. Wait a few days until you can mobilize a large army and then go out to attack King David and you'll surely be able to crush him. No matter where he goes or where he tries to hide, you'll crush him with your large numbers. Well, Avishalom said, I have to admit that I'm inclined this time to accept the advice of Hushai over that of Ahisophel. Of course, this is how King David's life was saved, because this was his saving. He was notified by the sons of the Kohen Godot about this plan, and so he had a chance to flee across the Jordan River, and that way to save his life. Uh, Ahisophel saw, the Gemara says that he saw that his advice was disregarded. It was ignored. So a person who is wise and considers himself wise, nothing hurts more than anything that touches his vanity or his pride is broken. 
So he went home, broken-hearted, and he committed suicide. He hanged himself. The Gemara says that this is not the whole story. The hanging of Achisofel was not really due to this incident. This just brought about something which was caused by an entirely different incident altogether. The Gemara tells us a very interesting story about the, the fact that King David was very anxious to build the base of Mikdash, the Holy Temple, but a, a request that Hashem had refused. Hashem told him, your son, King Solomon, will build it. However, King David said, at least let me prepare the site, place for it. Let me at least dig the foundation for the base of Mikdash. Iwara says that when he dug the foundation, we have what is known the first paragraph of creation. It says, Hashem created the world, the heaven and the earth, Bereshis. In the beginning, there was the Tahom. The Tahom means the deep. The waters that covered the deep. Or the waters that came from the deep. What is this Tahom, this depth? The core of the earth, which is filled with water. The Gemara says that this water, which in a sense is lighter than earth, water floats, water rises to a height above earth. Why doesn't this water come out and just cover the entire earth? Why doesn't it flood the world? The Gemara answers because Bereshis, the first thing Hashem created, Bora Shis. Shis means the foundation stone of the world in which the world was created. The Gemara tells about how the world was created through this stone, began from one rock. Hashem just molded the earth from this rock. But the balance of this rock remained as a stopper on the Tahom point where the water is contained. That is the center of the earth, center of creation. Now, the Gemara tells us that where exactly is the center of the world? Since the world is round, it's a globe, any spot can be the middle. So where did this center really begin to form this globe? The exact spot where the base of Mikdash is. The holy temple, and the fact that where the holy ark is, the Mizbeach, that's the exact center of this universe, the earth, the entire universe. At this spot, there we have that rock. It's a chaspa, or a rock made of clay, which covers that opening where the waters are. And on that rock, there's carved out the name of Hashem, which keeps the waters in, keeps the waters closed in, because how else would a rock be able to hold down such pressure. Now, as King David dug, he found this rock, and he removed the rock, intending to plant a foundation for the base of Mikdash. As he removed the rock, the Imara says a flood began, and the world was in danger of being flooded. The waters began to rise. The rising of the waters was in degrees, approximately a thousand, almost each degree, and they rose to a point where the world was in danger of being flooded, so King David said, can anybody tell me if we can do something about stopping this flood by putting down, writing the name of Hashem on this stone, again, to give it that power to close up this opening. Is it permissible to write the name of Hashem, which might be erased through the waters? He did not want to state the law himself, because Achisophel, who was present at the time, was King David's rabbi. And the Gemara says that any student who states a law in front of his rabbi receives a death penalty. So King David was forced to remain silent and to ask it in the form of a question. There was no reply forthcoming. King David 
who is desperate said, whoever knows the answer, if he will not give me the answer, then may he be hung as a penalty. So Achisalva came forth and said, the answer is, you may write the name of Hashem, though it will be erased. Because we have the din of Sota, you recall, when a woman is taken before the Kohen Godel, she's given the bitter waters to drink. And what makes those waters have miracle powers? The fact that in those waters are placed the letters of the Torah containing the name of Hashem. Hashem says, let my name be erased in order to bring peace between husband and wife. Achisalfa said, if Hashem is willing to have his name erased, the peace between husband and wife, then surely so in order to bring peace between the world, peace in the, the entire world, rather than destruction. King David wrote of this name on this rock, placed it down at the opening, and he said, that's where we have the Shir Hamalos, said by King David, 15 Shir Hamalos, which brought the water down 15 levels. Hamalos means steps. Each Shir Hamalos brought the water down one step, one level, till it came, reached the right level beneath the ground, and it was contained. Now, the Yorah says that at that point, Achisophel did reply immediately. King David had said, whoever knows the answer and does not reveal it should die by hanging. Achisophel did reveal it, but there was no way to escape hanging because the Gemara says that a tzaddik or a chacham who emits or issues a curse, even if that curse is stated on condition, if a person does a certain thing that he is cursed and the person does not do it, as long as the curse came out of the tzaddik's mouth, it must come true. So even though Achisophel fulfilled the request, the demand of King David, once that curse came out of King David's mouth, Achisophel had to die by hanging to fulfill the power, power of the words of a tzaddik. This is why Rosho says that actually we find in Pirkei Avos a statement that would, could be very much more clarified, become clearer with this story. Perkyo, as we found the last chapter, sixth chapter, says that anybody who learns anything from any person, a halacha, a din, or a, a few words of Torah, a chapter of Torah, or even a word of Torah, or even a letter, is supposed to call that person his rabbi. We find that King David learned from Achisophel just two words, and he called him his rabbi. So from this we see that if you will learn anything, even one letter, you have to call a person your rabbi. How do we learn from here that even one single letter rates being called a rabbi? The answer is that the Pasuk says, Hashem created two worlds, not one. Olam Hazeh and Olam This world and the upper world, the heavenly world of Gan The Pasuk says, Ki Hashem, Ki Hashem Tzur Olamin. With the letters Yud and K, Hashem created Olam in the two worlds. The Yud, he created Olam Habo with. It's a very small letter to show, symbolize the fact that just as the letter Yud is small, that's how the population there is small. There are very few tzaddikim who deserve Kedit compared to the population of this world. The letter K is the letter with which he created this world. He bore Om. The letter K, he created heaven and earth. So, when Achisophel taught King David that in this case you are allowed to write Hashem's name on this stone, what did he teach in this one letter? What's Hashem's name? The letter K with which this world was created. 
How was it created with the letter K? Because Hashem said that this world can exist only if the Jews accept the Torah. If the Jews study the Torah, the world will continue to exist. If not, the world will be destroyed. And this we find in the sixth day of creation, when it says, Yom Hashishi. Yom Hashishi means the sixth day. The only day in which we have the Ha, the letter He in front of the number. Each day has Sheni, Shlishi, Ravi, Chamishi, but not the letter Ha in front of it. Yom Hashishi, the letter He, to show that the sixth day of Sivan, that Shavuos, when the Torah was given, this is what completed the creation of the world. Without that sixth day of Sivan, without Matan Torah, without the Jews receiving the Torah, there could be no world that would be destroyed. And this is for the entire future too. So this letter He is a symbol, is part of Hashem's name. That if there is a Torah, then the, the world will continue to exist. That's the letter that was on the stone originally. That the Borashis, that letter He was on that rock, when King David removed it, he had to reinstate, reimpose the letter He on the rock. This is what Achiselpel taught King David. So we see that just one single letter is enough to constitute teaching a person and being rated his rabbi. Now we can understand that statement in Perkyavos, where it says that because King David learned from Achiselpel with just one single letter, two words, or even had been one single letter, it would still be enough to, to be required to have to call him rabbi. But this was the case true case that caused the death of Achisophel by hanging. The rest, of course, was just side items, side incidents that led up to the point where he died through hanging. Hanging, of course, was a suicidal act to show how deeply hurt his pride was. He was ready to die rather than to face the world after his advice had been ignored. But the fact that his advice was ignored is what saved King David's life because then he was able to continue on across the Jordan River and escape annihilation that night. Later on, when Avshalom finally did mobilize a large army, King David was then prepared for battle to fight in his manner, which of course was always successful, having his armies divided into three parts, led by Yoav, his brother, another general, in which we come to the, the final chapter in the story of Avshalom. A very interesting chapter showing the, the results of this rebellion, but not the end of the story of the suffering from within that we will take up at the next shear. Again, the point is we see from the story time and again, stories throughout, the Kedusha, the holiness of the great Sadiqim case of King David, who had accepted all his suffering, not because of anything he did, because as a true leader of the Jews, he was willing to suffer, to go through this torment in order to teach the Jews the power of tshuva, power of repentance. And if we accept this lesson truly, implicitly, with true faith, believing the Munashtem in the power of the, the holiness of these Sadiqim, and the power of tshuva, the schus of these two, and Muna and tshuva, we will surely be zochet to see with our eyes the coming of Ben David, coming of Mashiach Ben David, and the rebuilding of the Beis Hamikdash. Amen.